Let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for giving us your, revela your revelation this evening. We seek your wisdom. Lord, we ask that you be a light upon our paths and that you guide us in our steps. Lord, we seek more knowledge of you. Help us to grow in you as individuals and as a church body, Lord. It's exciting times right now. And, and we thank you for the opportunities that you've given us. Use us to do your work and will, Lord. We don't want to be a complacent church. We, we desire to be your representatives to a lost world. I pray for this congregation, this church family that we have. And I'm sure there are many concerns on the hearts of our, our church family. Ask that you provide comfort and healing and relief and simply let them know your presence, Lord. Be with those that are in need. I ask that you bless the teaching this evening that you will just take me out of the way and, and, and have, just have your way with, with the teaching, Lord. Show us what's in store for us this evening. Give us the ears to hear your perfect word. Teach us more of you. Father, allow your indwelling Holy Spirit to move among us. Give us clarity that only you can provide. I'm grateful for this church. I'm thankful for you being our God. I thank you for sending your son so our sins can be forgiven. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides our understanding and mediates for our prayers. I thank you for all that you're doing for us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're going to cover tonight um, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. That's my intention. And as, as we start into this chapter... I'm going to take a minute or two just to briefly remind us of what has occurred to this point. Um, we've got the healing of a lame man who was a beggar at the gate called Beautiful. Peter and John were used to healing. He goes into the temple with Peter and John. The crowd recognizes this man who's been healed, and the crowd assembles around them. And we think about this, we think about even a, a big church in our area. We could see hundreds of people possibly gathering around. But we're going to find out shortly that we're talking about thousands and ten thousands of people. This crowd must have been huge that gathered around. This man has been lame since birth and has probably sat at that gate most days for a lot of his mature life. And they want to know what's happened to him. So I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but there's a number of applications in, in Peter's sermon here in the temple. And we talked about the Abrahamic covenant the last time we done this and how that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. We, um, we talked about the fact that the healing happened through Christ's name, physical and spiritual healing, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. And it's at this point that we're about to see the apostles taken into custody. <clears throat> They're going to appear before the same council that Jesus stood before and was questioned by. We're going to see the apostles questioned in the realm of what exactly do you think you're doing here in our temple? Now that's layman's terms, but I think you're going to hear that as we go through these verses. And ultimately, we're about to be given an example of how to deal with persecution as we all go through trials and different levels of persecution in our life. So as we review these next ten verses, I would ask that you let your thoughts reside around the sovereignty of God and that Him doing His will in our lives. We need to recognize the indwelling Holy Spirit within Peter as he speaks. And the endurance that this first persecution of the church age requires. 
this persecution is by far not a violent one that we would think about. They will become much worse. So if you would, and you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now it happened that on the next day their, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in their midst, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? <clears throat> then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and the elders of the people, If we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. And I'm going to stop right there. Let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, this is your word. And we know that it will not return void. And I pray that you, you will help us to be obedient to your will and desires. And I ask that you help us to apply your teaching to our lives. And Lord, guide us this evening. Help us to gain clarity in all that you'd have to say to us. Lord, we, we thank you for your word and for your guidance. Help us to recognize it and to, to respond per, properly to it, Lord. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. All God's children said, amen. And you can be seated. <clears throat> so verses 1 and 2... It reads, now as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So as I go through these verses, this is what we call this form of, of teaching, this form of preaching is called expository. And it's going through the scriptures one verse at a time explaining the words and the phrases so that you can really understand what's being said. And there are people out there that are not big fans of this type of preaching, and there are people out there that just will have nothing else. Hearing the word is the main thing, right? I like this because it does not avoid those tough, hard scriptures. It forces you to seek that understanding it forces you not to just take somebody's word for it. It forces you to dig to get the understanding that you're looking for. So as we go through this, I think tonight, a lot of tonight will be more of a teaching than a preaching. A lot of these first particularly eight verses are going to be somewhat historical. Who is this? What did they mean? But let's, let's bear with me and let's see where we end up with this. So in verse 1, we have the first indication that John was speaking along with Peter. Up until this point, we've only seen Peter being the one doing the speaking. But when, Luke, when Peter uses the phrase, or Luke records the phrase, as they were speaking, they's plural, and it must mean Peter and John. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. <clears throat> we know about John. We probably know more about John than we do Peter. As we do our studies, John wrote the Gospel of John, which is many of our favorite gospel. He's also got three smaller books by his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's the one who wrote of the vision he had that became our book of Revelation. So we know that he's intelligent enough to preach a sermon. We know that he knows what he needs to know to be a teacher. And we know 
that he is perfectly capable of being by Peter's side during this. So as we see that, we, we don't need to be surprised by that. But suddenly at this point, we see that they are approached by a number of the leaders of the Jews. <clears throat> now these people are called the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them. <clears throat> this is a phrase that would be real easy to just read and go on by it. But you have to stop yourself and say, okay. Let me, let me ask myself a question. Okay, I think I know what the priests are. What are the priests? And who is this captain of the temple guard? What exactly is that? I mean, I think I know, but what does that really mean? What was his position? And then the Sadducees, who were they? So the priests are basically those who are in the temple performing the sacrifices. They did teaching. They dealt with the needs of the people that were in the temple. They may have been sweeping the floor or they may have been slaughtering the lambs. They may have been preaching from the Old Testament, teaching from the Old Testament, or they may have been counseling at some level. But that's who the priests are. They interacted with various people, dealt with potential needs, and, and that's probably the easy one of the group. We know what a priest is, right? The captain of the temple guard was also a priest. I don't know if you were aware of that. In fact, he was second in command only to the high priest. This position of the captain of the temple guard was used many times as a stepping stone to become the high priest. The position was charged with maintaining order in the temple, its surrounding areas. Uh, was often used as a stepping stone, as I said, and, of course, the commander of security would be there to arrest anyone that might be causing a disturbance. Peter and John preaching the resurrection in the name of Jesus Christ inside the temple during the third hour of prayer was definitely a disturbance with tens of thousands of people in attendance, right? So the captain of the temple guard being there is not a surprise. And the next people mentioned are the Sadducees, and they're an interesting lot. Um, they make up the majority of what we call the Sanhedrin. And we're going to learn more about the Sanhedrin as we go through this teaching tonight. And this group is referenced that we're going to talk about. They're referenced as the Sanhedrin when we get to verse 15. But this council they're going to be taken before is called the Sanhedrin. But right now, all you need to understand, and we'll get to more depth later is that the Sanhedrin was the supreme court, if you will, of the nation of Israel, of the Jewish nation at that time. They were the decision makers. They were the justice givers. But there's a lot more to this uh, Sadducees group than you, you might think because they didn't embrace any teaching of the supernatural. They believed that the first five books, the Torah, the law, if you will, were the only authoritative books to be recognized and to be taught. I think they saw value in the later books of the Old Testament. But when it came to teaching the scripture, those first five books is all they recognized as being authoritative. When I say they didn't recognize anything of the supernatural, they denied doctrines related to a messiah. They denied doctrines related to any kind of healing of angels and demons, immortality, predestination, and especially resurrection. Resurrection of anyone, not just the Messiah, but resurrection, period. They believed that the heavenly ascent of, of man was going to be a spiritual one, not a physical one. So when, when you think about the Sadducees, understand they're a very particular bunch but they make up the majority of what we call the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. The point of, uh, of them rejecting the resurrection is brought out explicitly in the Bible. If you go looking for their rejection of angels, you're probably not going to find that verified in the Scripture. But as you read through various different historical writings, the commentators, that is recognized by everyone. So I just want to clear that up. But the resurrection is noted in the Bible in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. 
particularly that they deny the resurrection. And I think we do that we see that here because Jesus' resurrection is a pain point for them. And the need to have that spelled out clearly is there. <clears throat> Marker, uh, MacArthur makes it very clear. He says, uh, these theological liberals were the first to persecute the church. Period, end quote. The Sadducees' primary concern was to maintain diplomatic relationships with the occupying Romans that were there. Their primary job was to tend to the people. Their primary concern was political. Their primary concern was the profitability of being in good favor with Rome. Their primary concern was having people be obedient to their law, not God's law. And they were willing to do whatever it took to maintain a relationship with the Roman occupiers, if you will. Any talk of a Messiah presented uh, what they viewed as the possible presence of an Israeli, an opposing Israeli king. And we know that when Jesus came as the Messiah, most of the people wanted to see somebody coming in on a war horse. They wanted to see somebody come in and run Rome out of town. They want to see Israel restored to its own strong nation. And he came as a savior, and they rejected that. That wasn't what they wanted. So the Sadducees saw the Messiah as a threat to their very positioning with, with the Ro Roman government. And this would, uh, this would heavily affect their influence, the profitability of the society. So, so they didn't want to hear that. And here we have Peter and John in their holy temple, preaching in the name of Jesus, whom they had crucified, talking about the resurrection, with tens of thousands of their parishioners listening. Verse 2 informs us that these groups were highly agitated. Highly agitated. That's a pretty nice way to put that, isn't it? Now, there's three reasons for them to be agitated, three main reasons. Peter and John were not authorized to preach in this, or teach in this temple. Teachers were required to have certain credentials. Teachers were expected to have been through some levels of education. But they were not authorized. But here they are in the temple teaching and preaching. The content of what they were teaching concerning the resurrection was of particular concern to them, as we've talked about. And number three, the fact that they were teaching in Jesus' name was likely their largest concern. But it kind of remained unspoken at this point. The leaders of the Jews expected that a teacher would be properly educated. Peter and John did not possess the education they required. He had a three-and-a-half-year degree with Jesus Christ in person 24-7. But they didn't recognize that. Teachers in the, in the Jewish community were commonly referred to as rabbi. And the word rabbi means great one. Commonly understood, the definition is teacher. There's a common meaning that people applied to it. The teachers were expected of being capable of answering questions, offering teachings. They were expected to be able to face issues around the law and the doctrines. They typically would have a following of disciples. And maybe that explains why people like Nicodemus called Jesus rabbi. Because he was clearly able to teach the law, the doctrines. And he had a following of disciples, right? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea was a follower of Christ. He too was a Pharisee. Further teaching in the temple, their holy place, by unauthorized people was forbidden. The apostles' teaching presented tension for these leaders. One of the, I think one of the biggest tensions that it really caused the Jewish leaders was the fact that Peter and John are standing here doing this teaching in things that they don't approve of, but they were doing it with power and authority. They were standing toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Here's the truth. Listen to us. 
I have to believe that the Jewish leaders were fully aware of what had happened on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people were converted in the streets of Jerusalem in the name of Jesus. A very similar sermon to what we've heard on start here in the temple until they get interrupted. The Jewish leaders knew what happened that day. You can't make me believe otherwise. And here they are in the temple with all these people gathered around them wanting to know how did this happen? Mm. Teaching with power. Any teaching of a resurrection ultimately involved some level of teaching of end times, what we would call eschatology today. And the Sadducees rejected, rejected this type of teaching and it caused them to be perplexed. It caused them to be disturbed, angered. And they knew that this kind of teaching would cause things. It would cause revolt. It would cause threats of overthrowing the foreign occupiers, the Romans. Restoration of a Davidic kingdom. Davidic kingdom, as strange as it is to say, was something that the Sadducees weren't interested in. How could the leaders of the Jewish nation not want to return to a Davidic kingdom? This is what greed and self-interest and conceit will do to you. They were lining their pockets with the money of favorability with the Roman government. That money came from the people of Israel. That money came from the Roman government. It came from all over the place. Political power that they had that the Roman government secured for them. They were very, the Roman government was very influential, as we'll see in a little while, about who is the high priest. Who are we going to work with? But ultimately, their fears would come to full fruition when the war, when war would break out with the Romans in A.D. 66. And I think we're all aware of the destruction that happened in A.D. 70. And the result would be severe consequences for the Jewish leadership. And as already mentioned, the Sadducees had grown accustomed to living a lavish lifestyle under the Roman rule. And they really wanted no part of a revolt, no part of an overthrow. And then we have what I believe is the largest reason that this leadership was angered. And according to the opinion of the Sanhedrin, Peter and John had some nerve to even mention a blasphemer's name inside that temple. This is what Christ was crucified for. They accused him of being a blasphemer. Who are you to stand in our holy temple and use this blasphemer's name? That's what they were being accused of, right? The leaders of the Jewish nation had executed Jesus for this. And here Peter and John are preaching it. You know, and, and I can sit here and read this, and it, it's one thing. These Sadducees had to be thinking to themselves, how are we going to get rid of this Jesus guy? We have beat him, we have striped him, we hung him on a cross, we punched a spear in his side, we buried him in a tomb and sealed the thing shut, and he's still haunting us today. Did that not have to be going through their mind? Still haunting us. So Peter and John are doubling down on Jesus' name here. The performing of miracles in his name and now proclaiming his res resurrection. So what else is there for the leaders to do? In verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. <clears throat> For it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. They laid hands on them. When you ask yourself, what does, what does this mean? Laying hands on them doesn't necessarily mean that they beat them. It means they were taken into custody and they were arrested. Right there, right then, in the midst of the sermon, in the midst of all the listeners, the leaders of the Jewish temple barged in, took them into custody, cuffed them, and threw them behind bars. If 
So I really have to wonder if the leaders really thought, okay, if we go in here and just rush this place, we're going to take them into custody. We're going to haul them out of here and let the people see this. And that will intimidate them, and they won't listen to these guys anymore. We let them get away with it in the street, and we saw what happened. We're not going to do that. Right? So no matter what, the Sanhedrin had to shut this down. The unauthorized teaching had to stop, and they had to stop it now. The verse tells us that Peter and John had to spend the night in jail because it was evening. And that's interesting because trials were not allowed to be held at night unless your name was Jesus. So they spent the night in jail. When you're in jail in in Jerusalem in that day, it wasn't like today. They didn't bring you food and water, bread and water, whatever it is. You didn't have a facility that you shared with someone. You were thrown into a cell with bars. If you got anything to eat, someone from outside had to bring it to you. If you needed medical treatment, someone from outside had to bring you what you needed. You had to apply it to yourself or whoever might be in the cell with you. You were in jail. So they spent the night there. And and it's pretty interesting. I did a lot of reading, and I may have wasted a little time here, but I don't know if you ever really waste time. But any time you see persecution of the church, you see the opposite of what was intended by the persecution, it seems like. There was one, one person I read about, he said that persecution is the seed of church growth. It's the seed of kingdom growth. And I really had to think through that some. But when you really think about when are people the most devout, when are people the most dedicated? It's when something they believe becomes something you're not supposed to do. Even in a worldly sense. There's something you really embark into and they say, no, you can't do that. Instead of robbing one bank, I'll go rob two. You tell me I can't do something that I want to do. Even from a worldly sense, we see this similar result. And it's especially so in, in the Christian sense, in the persecution of the church sense. And we're going to see different levels of persecution as we go through this. But the joy of that is we're going to see people continuing to be saved through that persecution. Verse 4 informs us that many were converted. About 5,000 men is what the scripture quotes. Most theologians believe that number to be at least 10,000. Because this says 5,000 men. 10,000 if you include women and children. Their opinion is that numbers of converted men would be representative of households that saw conversion. Why would they just say 5,000 men instead of 10,000 men and women? Well, we've got examples of that. Some examples of where the Bible talks about this in Acts 10, verses 1 and 2. We have a centurion named Cornelius. He's described as a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. He's a devout man. He feared God with all his household. John chapter 4, we have the story of a royal official whose son was sick and he was dying. And the man runs to where Jesus is and says, can you save my son? He's dying. Jesus did not go to the house. He did not lay hands on him. He didn't sprinkle him with water. He said, your son will live. He says, your son's not going to die from miles away. The man, his servants come to him and tell him, hey, your son lives. In verse 53, chapter 4 of John, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. We see many examples where a conversion happens and the household comes alongside of the converted. Acts chapter 5, which we will probably get to before too long, Um, we see both men and women being saved there. It says, and more than ever, more than ever, this is after 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 here in the temple, 
More than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men and women. Up to this point, you could kind of count and guess how many people were a part of this first church. When you get to this part in chapter 5, you start losing some count. It all becomes estimates. Because there's more people saved there in chapter 5 than has been before. It's more than ever, right? So I don't want us to get hung up on the scripture reading as though only men are being saved because that's not the case. The scriptures are clear that both men and women are, and even entire households get saved. But even while the apostles are being tried and jailed, while they're behind bars, that message is still going forth. God is still doing his work. The message has gone out. People have repented and returned, repented and believed, and were converted while they stood behind the bars of the jail. They didn't have to walk down an aisle and say that 15-word prayer. They, didn't. they believed and they were saved. Yet, this first persecution of the church continues. Verses 5 to 7 read, Now it happened that on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all of who were of high priestly descent. And when they placed them in their midst, they began to inquire, By what power and what name have you done this? Here's the question. What power and what name have you done this? So I'm going to spend a little bit of time here and do some groundwork around this council they've been put in front of. This is what I was talking about, the Sanhedrin earlier. And this is confirmed in verse 15 later in this chapter, so you can look ahead and verify that. But what is the Sanhedrin? Basically, as I said, it's the Supreme Court of Israel, the nation of Israel. If they're second in command to anyone, it's to the Roman occupying government that's there. But when you look at the, the ranks of the nation of the Jews, they were the highest-ranking officials. The Sanhedrin consisted primarily of Sadducees, and there was a minority of lower-ranking members who were Pharisees. <clears throat> there was a time when only the Sadducees were on this council, and history records that Queen Alexandria forced the Sanhedrin to allow Pharisees to be on this council around 70 B.C. before Christ. And this was done because even she, as an unbeliever and the leader of the Roman government, could see that the Sadducees were not favored by the people, even though they were friends with the Romans, and the Romans liked having them there. She was able to see the dissension that was there and said, hey, if you know what's good for you, you better put some of these Pharisees on this council with you. So that was followed. They weren't given the prominent positions normally but there were some on there. This is the same group that Jesus stood before just weeks earlier in John 18. It's likely that every member there was there when they tried Jesus. The same names, the same faces. And it was during this time that Jesus was facing the Sanhedrin that Peter denied Christ three times. This is that same time when all this is happening. And this Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members. 70 members were appointed to that based on Numbers chapter 11. And then there was a 71st member who was the high priest who was always the tie-breaking vote. So this verse starts out talking about rulers and elders and scribes, and I'm going to take just a minute. The rulers were basically the highest-ranking priest in the temple, almost always were Sadducees. The elders were heads of the Levitical tribes, or the family heads within the Jewish faith, and they were typically the oldest member of that family. And the scribes were lower-ranking positions, but were considered experts on the law and were able to do teaching. And this was quite often... Pharisees, more often than not, in those scribe-type positions. In verse 6, we find names being named. We have Annas is named. And he's the most influ influential political figure among the Jews at this time. He was deposed as the high priest by the Roman government in favor of his son-in-law that we'll talk about in a minute. 
But he remained the power behind the court, behind the scenes. He continues to be referred to as the high priest in a similar fashion that we would address a former president still as president so-and-so. He was still regarded as a high priest even though he was not in that office. He had five sons, one son-in-law and one grandson who served as high priest in successive terms, back to back to back. This is how he maintained a grip of political power. He kept it in the family. You better listen to dad. You better listen to granddad. The son-in-law, you know, he's got his wife there. You better listen to dad, right? I'm picking at you, Jack. And then we have Caiaphas, who's also named. He is the son-in-law. He and, and Annas were instrumental in the trial of Jesus in John chapter 18. He was the actual high priest during the trial of Jesus. And here again in the trial of Peter and John, he is the actual high priest. He's believed to have been the longest serving high priest of the New Testament time, serving 18 to 19 years. And it's believed that he was befriended by Pilate and that Pilate was very influential in getting him appointed as the high priest. Being friends with Pilate would be a good way to last 18 or 19 years as the high priest. And we have someone named John that is named, and this is not the John that is behind bars with Peter. This is, this is a different John. It's thought to be Jonathan, Annas's son. He's believed to be the successor of the high priest position after Caiaphas. We have someone named Alexander who is named that we really don't know a whole lot about. I've got 12 commentaries that I use. I've got about four different other books that I try to use. And when I read through them, I think there was about 10 different opinions of who Alexander was. Everything from one of his sons, one of Honest's sons, to just a high priestly person. All I can tell you about Alexander for sure is he, was, he had notoriety and he was name by name. So he was a person of high influence within the Jewish belief. And then it says, all who were of high priestly descent are pointed out. And as I've said, the Sanhedrin was more of a political power than a religious power. The highest ranking of the Jews, their time appears to be spent wooing the Roman powers. Of these high priestly people, it's expected that each tribe had a representative in the council. And certainly there were many people of prominence that served on the council. So when you think about standing before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin would get in their courtroom, if you will, and they would be in a semicircle, a horseshoe shape even. And whoever was being questioned or interrogated or on trial would be in the midst of that where everyone could see them and they could see everyone. Anyone who was speaking could see the other person that was speaking even within the council itself. I found it interesting, John MacArthur is the only person of all the people that I read through, he said they routinely conducted their business in a place called the Hall of Hewn Stone, H-E-W-N Stone. I heard no one else said that. Normally you can find at least two or three others that back it up. But I found that interesting. That was the name of the place where they typically had their court. <coughs> As I said, the people sat in the middle and the Sanhedrin surrounded them, and this is where John and Peter were located when the questioning began. Another point that I would like to make here, before I go any further, is that Peter and John really followed a Christly example when they were arrested. If you remember when Christ was arrested, he offered no resistance. We have no indication that Peter and John fought back at all. Christ even put the ear back on the, I uh, can't remember who the person was, but Peter had cut their ear off when they came to arrest Christ. Even took time to heal that person's ear. There was no resistance, and I think Peter and John have done the same thing here. They obviously had complete faith in God's sovereignty that this entire scenario, however this ends up and wherever we're taken to, there's work to be done, and we're going to be faithful to do it. 
And then the questioning begins. By what power or in what name have you done this? What power and what name are questions concerning the apostles' authority to teach and preach? Interesting that what power did you heal this guy was not the question that was asked. They denied the supernatural and didn't believe in healing such as this. But yet they see this lame man standing before them, right? How do you deny this? You never see the Sanhedrin denying whether this guy was healed or not. But they denied the supernatural. So this created a lot of tension. The word name or power is referencing their authority directly. Who taught you this? Why should we allow this to continue or following questions that could be asked? Their implication is that the apostles have acted sinfully as the Sanhedrin did not give them authority or permission to be in the temple preaching. They were not approved. The question is pointed directly to their preaching. Why are you doing this? It seems the Sanhedrin was attempting to back Peter and John into a corner by means of intimidation with this question. They, they wanted to put them in a position where they would deny Christ. They wanted to put them into a position to where that they may, well, we're not going to say that anymore. We're not going to do that anymore. But the Sanhedrin didn't realize what, who they were fooling with here. Because Peter would not deny his Lord again. The question that they're asking here is very similar to what was asked of Jesus at this point. When he was before the Sanhedrin in Luke chapter 20 verse 2. And they spoke saying to him, tell us by what, what authority you're doing these things. And who is the one who gave you this authority? This is almost the same question that Jesus received when he was being questioned. And for devout Jews, there were only two options. If you had a healing, there were two options on what power did this. It was the power of God, or it was the power of Satan. And we've seen that in the Gospels before. And Peter's already publicly stated that they didn't do this within their own power. It wasn't us. We have no power to do things such as this. But they told him that it took place by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, the, the really good thing here is this question is the perfect setup for Peter and John. Because the Sanhedrin is really expecting to push these two guys around, right? They're in control. We're the Sanhedrin. We'll thump our chest. You will respond to our questioning. You will do what we say. And they've asked this question, which is just a grand opportunity for two guys that have got nothing else to do but preach and teach about Jesus. How will they ever have the opportunity again to preach the gospel of Christ to the whole Sanhedrin at one time? Verses 8 through 10. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Wow. And they were expecting, we won't do it anymore, I promise. Right? Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, offered, I mentioned a minute ago that they offered no resistance. It, we don't have any recording of any resistance that they offered when they were arrested. They have humbled themselves. They have recognized that physically they're in the hands of the Sanhedrin. They're in shackles, they've been behind bars, and they realize that they have no power here to do anything. 
and they have submitted themselves to the power of Christ. They have allowed, if you will, the Holy Spirit to have total control of this and not be in the way. But ultimately, they are in the Sanhedrin's hands here. But they're really in the hands of God, right? So Jesus had warned them that this day would come. Prophetic almost to the word that this day would come for them. Luke 12, 11 through 12. Now when, you, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Luke 21, 12 through 15. <clears throat> but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will result in an opportunity for your testimony. Think about this. This is Christ talking before this happened. This is going to result in an opportunity for your testimony. So set in your hearts not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to refute or resist. I'm going to stop right there on that verse because I really want to come back to this after we finish 11 and 12 next week and talk a little more about bold, spirit-filled teaching. But man, that's a real story. They were told by the king of kings. They were told by Jesus himself, the son of God, exactly what's going to happen and how to handle it. And apparently they remembered this, right? So I'm going to move on to verse 9 right here. Peter takes control of this conversation from his first complete statement. He appeals to the Sanhedrin by reminding them that they are questioning them because of a good deed. We're here because we did this great thing. If we had not been there and this man had not been healed, we would not be here before you today. When someone does something good of great benefit to others, we should greet that with thanksgiving. We should put roses on their shoulders or we should put them on the front page of the newspaper and we should raise those people up and say, look what a wonderful thing they did. And maybe, just maybe, if we recognize them for what they did, they'd be willing to do it again and again. And Peter's saying here, you've got us here because we've done something really great. You've got us here because this miracle happened. And in doing this, Peter immediately... He immediately causes the Sanhedrin to look outside of this criminal investigation and to take a real look at what happened here. Is what these people saying is true? Peter's saying, how can you, the Sanhedrin, find fault for doing a good deed to a man who has been crippled since his birth? Amazing. The pride of the Sanhedrin and their denial of miracles obviously is a roadblock for them at this point. Peter's aware of what they believe. He's going to throw this supernatural stuff in their face. He's going to make them deal with it. They deny it, but he's going to make them face the truth. And the last part of verse 9 is some really interesting verbiage in this Legacy Standard Bible it says, has been saved from his sickness. And saved is a strange word to use here when you're talking about physical healing. But they use this word saved here intentionally. Other versions use differing words here. The New American Standard and the New King James Version read, has been made well. <clears throat> the English Standard Version reads, by what means this man has been healed. King James says, by what means he is made whole. 
the NIV even, how he was healed. And I feel like these versions have missed the point that the translators of the Legacy Standard was trying to bring out. There's something here. And it starts back in the Greek with a word called sozo. S-O-Z-O. This word can be properly used to explain physical healing. I want to say that up front. Don't get me wrong. Sozo can be used in application to physical healing. But most commonly it's associated with the word salvation somehow. Most commonly sozo is used when we're talking about being born again. When we're talking about regeneration. And here we find this word sozo used in in the perfect passive tense. That may not mean a whole lot to, to most of you. But when you use the perfect passive tense, that's saying, okay, this person is saved now. This person is saved later today. This person is saved tomorrow. They're being saved next week. They're being saved next month. Forever they are being saved. That sounds a lot like salvation too, doesn't it? It's a continuing being saved. Now Peter does not indicate which illness he's speaking of here. Whether it's the state of being lame. Or whether it's the state of having a heart that is lost. Of being condemned. I think he meant both. I think Sozo's use here is intentional. In that not only are you physically healed from a disease or disorder you've had since birth, you're permanently healed for another disease you've had since birth called sin. So I found found that quite interesting. He has been saved from his sickness. Peter continues his sermon to the Sanhedrin in verse 10. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. And this is an interesting way to address the Sanhedrin. Let it be known. That's like saying, now hear this. Let it be known. All who can hear, let it be known. This phrase would commonly be used when something's about to be told that has an application to everyone within hearing distance to who's being who's doing the speaking. But what Peter is saying here is, is that I'm teaching you the truth, and likewise you need to go teach the Jewish nation the truth because they were the ones responsible for teaching all the people of Israel. So when he says this, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, he's saying... You're hearing the truth from me. Now they need to hear it from you. Now hear this. Peter proclaims, now hear this. What does he want them to hear? By the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. He's standing before the Supreme Court. He's standing in the Senate. The Washington, D.C., He's standing before the House of Representatives preaching the gospel. That's what this man is doing. It's at this point that Peter takes the opportunity to publicly confess the source of the miracle that has occurred. The name of Jesus Christ has been a main theme in both of Peter's previous sermons and it will continue to be his main theme in his life until the day he dies. He confronts the Sanhedrin with boldness, with truth, and he not only answers the questioning Sanhedrin, but he tells them who Jesus is. He proclaims their condemnation for rejecting their Messiah, and he boldly presents them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he does not stop there. He once again brings to their immediate attention that the blood of Jesus is on their hands. His implication here is that the true criminals who deserve to be questioned in this council are those that killed Christ. It's the same Sanhedrin who handed Jesus over to Pilate with Caiaphas. Caiaphas, that Jesus referred to. 
when he was meeting with Pilate, John 19, verse 11, Jesus answered and he told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Everyone that I read through on says that this is a reference to the current high priest, Caiaphas, is who Jesus was talking about. Various reasons why they're, they're at that point. Annas was called a high priest, but it wasn't his seat at that point. The decision maker was the person in the seat. And Peter uses the name Jesus and the emphasis on Christ here by me. Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, in his address to the Sanhedrin. And, and you might ask yourself, why would he do this? The name Christ is a direct reference to Jesus' state of being the Messiah. When you call him Christ, you're saying Messiah. Peter knows that they do not accept this teaching. Peter knows that they reject the teaching of the Messiah. They denied it over and over again. Their very teachings refused the Messiah. And Peter realized that that name is a burden for them. This is a problem for them. They want them to see the name of Jesus. They want them to see that his name brings goodness, not destruction. He heals. And I'm going to go back to a statement I made a minute ago. How shocked the Sanhedrin must be at this point. Instead of receiving the expected response that they thought they were going to get, they got the same sermon that Peter was preaching in the temple preached to them. They didn't get a denial. And Peter would not deny Savior again. And he closes this statement with, this man stands before you in good health. So Peter's closing out this particular verse, bringing them back to the good deed that had been done to this formerly lame beggar and saying it's because of his name that we have him standing here with us. Now, this is the first time in verse 10 that we know that the beggar's with them. I don't know if he was in jail with them or not. I don't know if he had to come back the next day. But we've seen this happen before when Jesus healed the blind man. They brought the blind man in and questioned him and said, Who is this guy that did this to you? He's like, Well, I don't know. Ask him. Hey, is this your son? Is it, wasn't he blind? Well, yeah. That's, that's, what, what's up with him? How can he now see? Well, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? I mean, we've seen this behavior before. But here stands this formerly lame beggar before a Sanhedrin that does not believe in miracles. They know as well as the people in that temple that he had sat outside that gate and they had done nothing to help him. For years he sat out there begging for alms, trying to find a way through life that he couldn't walk through. And here he is walking in, standing before them. And they're going to continue to deny, to deny that the supernatural happens. We should note now that, that this is the first time we're told that about the, the formerly uh, lame beggar being there with them. In closing, I would like to reiterate that Peter was not intimidated in standing before the Sanhedrin. Imagine, if you will, being before some huge government council and I mentioned the House of Representatives. I mentioned the Senate, the Supreme Court. This is the environment they were in. And Peter's not intimidated. If he'd been intimidated, he would have complied. If he had been intimidated, he would have at least pled the fifth. If he had been intimidated, he would have denied Christ again. He's already done it once. It's easier to do it the second or third time. Tell a lie. The second one's easier. I got away with stealing this time. I can do it again. He was not intimidated. Peter recognizes that preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin is likely a once-in-a-lifetime event. He wasn't going to let this pass. This is a hostile crowd. These are the same people that demanded that Christ be crucified and that they had no king but Caesar in order to blackmail Pilate who found Christ innocent and to put him on that cross anyway.
These are the same people. They're facing the same punishment that Christ had already endured just a few weeks ago. His bloodstains are probably still on the street in places when he carried his cross up on that hill. And here they are, but he wasn't intimidated. Peter and John were not afraid. I think about the points in Peter's sermons. He indicted for sin. You're guilty in rejecting Christ. Christ was crucified. Christ is resurrected. Death is defeated. This was all according to God's purpose. Christ is the only way to salvation. Repent and believe. I had a family member over the Christmas holiday and we were talking about our kids and the potential state of their salvation or lack thereof. And um, this person was making a comment to me that I just, I'm not, I'm not real comfortable in talking with my children about their state of salvation because I really, I just don't know what to say. I mean, they come from a divided home and they're always playing both ends against the middle between me and my ex-wife and, and you know, what, what am I going to do? Turn them even further away from me and against me. And you have, you have these moments in time. I looked at him and said, what do, you, what do you mean you don't know what to say? And he, he said, well, I just, I, how do I approach that? And I said, you just give them the gospel. You tell them that you have sinned and you have offended a holy God. And if you don't find forgiveness with him, you're going to face eter- eternal punishment. And I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm telling you this because I'm concerned about your eternal state. I don't want you mad at me. I'm your dad. If you were getting ready to jump off of a cliff, I would grab you. I'm speaking about your eternity here. And you find forgiveness for those sins, for this offended God, because he put his son on this cross who died for you and bled for you. He paid the price that you would have had to spend eternity in torment paying and would have never paid it in full. He paid it so that you don't have to. And all you have to do is repent and believe. So that's all you have to say. And at that point in time, I was telling this person something, and I've been guilty of where he's at. And I'm advising this person on how to handle that situation. And I have failed numerous times in that position. Peter gave them the gospel. He showed them the path. He showed them the way. And one can easily ask, how could Peter do this? Back in verse 8, it gave us a very easy answer that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. We, uh, we look around us and we look in our past and the history of all the Puritans and the great men of the, the church, the John Owens and the Jonathan Edwards and the Spurgeons and the John Calvins and the Tyndales and the Wycliffs and we could go on for hours naming all these great names and we even have them with us today. Sproul just left us and we've got MacArthur and we've got... And we put them on this pedestal and they're these great men of God. You know why they're great? Because they did like Peter and John and they submitted themselves to the Holy Spirit and they realized that they had no power for anything and they allowed themselves to be used. They allowed themselves to be a tool and they were used mightily because they were willing to submit. God through his Holy Spirit will fight our battles for us if we'll humble ourselves and stand firm in the truth. And I'd have to ask, where are you this evening? I've been asking that question of myself for the last week. Where are you at? Are you really there? I ask you, where are you? Can you boldly proclaim the truth even in not so hostile settings? What about your coworkers? 
These people aren't going to hang you on a cross. They're not going to burn you at a stake. They're not going to stick a spear in your side. What about your friends or your family? Strangers you may meet in your daily travels. I had a good conversation today with a, a black gentleman who works in Ingalls behind the deli bar. He can barely speak English. I think he's from Venezuela, if I remember correctly. And he's eat up with Jesus. And just talking with him. It's, a, it's, just, it's good to know you run into a brother and there you are. You run into a sister in Christ and there you are. And you have so much in common and you don't even know them. It's going to make us weird to the world if we do this. We're going to be the weirdos. But we're really supposed to be different from the world anyway, right? We're not supposed to comply to the culture. So my prayer for us is that we will always be ready to make that defense to anyone who asks us a question, to give us an account of the hope that's in us, to be able to do it with gentleness and fear, and to live our lives in such a manner that this question gets asked of us every day. I thank you for your time. And uh, we'll try it again next week. Verses 11 and 12. And I want to spend a little bit more time talking about bold, spirit-filled preaching. So, Jason, will you pray for us? Yes.